I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. Hey there, I am so excited to have Dr. Stacy Schmidt here with me today. She is a newly promoted associate professor of medicine at a safety net based hospital clinic here in Atlanta, where I live. Uh, she does her research focuses on understanding disparities, under, uh, improving the health and healthcare of underserved patients. Um, she uh, also focuses on social determinants of health in the primary care setting, which we'll get to. And um, there's just so much, she's a, the medical director uh, within this primary care center that she works and just so many amazing things. So I don't want to spend the whole time talking about her because I want, uh, Stacey, I'd love to hear. Uh, but also I want to mention that, um, that Dr. Schmidt had did the social determinants of health modules in my um, online course, uh, Conscious Anti-Racism, and did such an incredible job, thought-provoking job as well. So um, Stacey, thank you so much for joining me today having me. Um, you're welcome. I'm so glad you're here. So we have so much that we, I, that I want to ask you about and that we talked about before the interview started. Um, I guess let's start, let's start with the vaccine. Cause I think that's on a lot of people's minds right now as the vaccine is rolling out. And I'd love to talk with you a little bit about, I guess, a, what you've seen in your healthcare system with with healthcare providers and people's willingness to get the vaccine, any insights you might have into why the black community may or may not distrust the vaccine. Um, and if you've gotten any backlash by, for advocating for the vaccine, particularly as a black woman. So, you know, I will say in, in broad strokes um, that delivering the vaccine has proven to be a huge challenge because not only um, are we as healthcare providers um, having to take care of people who are, are really sick with COVID? But now we have to also think about the distribution process and basically be there to give the vaccines, which is hard to do if, if you're taking care of the sick persons with COVID. So we, we need huge support from, from our state and federal governments in terms of thinking about how to do this well and having the resources to do it well. And I would, I would argue that a physician is not our, nor a nurse practitioner or advanced practice provider has to be the one putting the vaccine into the arms of people or quite frankly, spending the time thinking about the, the distribution plan. Um, so this has been very challenging work to wrap our heads around. When then you bring up, it, back up a second, are, that's what they're doing. They're having the nurse practitioners and advanced practice providers administering the vaccines. Well, I, our nurses, our CMAs can all do it. And I do think we are having an all hands on deck approach. Okay, okay. But certainly physicians have been asked to volunteer as well because the numbers are just so huge in terms of what we need to, to do okay. that anyone and everyone who can step in to help um, can. But my argument would be that we could consider employing medical students and public health um, professionals outside of, of the medical, you know, health system or hospital system itself, because it, it, it doesn't, 
you know, you don't have to fly a rocket to, uh, to be able to give a vaccine. And could we be thinking about how to train up others who traditionally don't do it to give it so that we can focus on really taking care of the, the sick people out there who, who we need to take care of at the moment. Side note, I just heard something that they're asking for doctors to volunteer to work as nurses at some hospital system in Texas. And it's like, no, no, no. We don't know how to do those amazing things that the nurses do. Oh, true. You know, it's like, it's like, I don't know how to give a vaccine. Like, just because I went to, like, I, I could squeeze an, a, like an arm and, and put a syringe, but that just because I, it's just so interesting what people think that, like, all healthcare workers might be, like, our It is so true. I'm like, oh, you need someone to draw blood? Let me grab my nurse. She's so skilled at that, right? Like, yeah. I, am, I went into internal medicine. We are cerebral people. Like, <laughs> we are going to think about how to solve the problem. We are going to write the orders to solve the problem. But there are some very skilled people who can do a lot of the procedures or very skilled internists who can do certain procedures. So you're right. Like, <laughs> and a lot of time training to get that expertise. And so I, I just, I think it's so interesting. Anyway, I'm sorry to digress. Please continue. <laughs> so you're talking about the rollout and, and, and trying to get more people Fascinated, essentially. What's the plan? How will we distribute it? But my point to that is, if we are so busy having to do those things, what about just the messaging? What about people who want, our patients who want to know, is this safe? Doc, what should I be worried about? And they want to have that real discussion with me as the expert in my field. I am too busy thinking about just the plans for getting it out and volunteering to help with that and taking care of people in the hospital. I wanna be there at the bedside in my clinic setting on the phone with my patients, encouraging them, but I mean, you can only be pulled so far. So I think that in terms of the messaging of this and really, especially for our vulnerable populations, helping where there may be mistrust, helping them to really understand and have their questions be answered, we haven't invested nearly as much time in that as we should. I'm excited to see some things coming forth with that. And forgive me, we have a ton of virtual learning over here and lots of stuff going on in the background. But we, so Tyler Perry and Kim Manning um, just had a, a special on BET where he really you know, said, I'll get the vaccine if you come and answer my questions. And, and while we're at that, why don't we <laughs> record this and, and let our, our public see it. Um, but he wanted his questions answered and she got to sit there and go through it um, in any way he wanted. And, and that's what's needed and what's missing, but we don't really have the time or infrastructure to do that well. So I appreciate that Tyler and others are really thinking about <laughs> how to help us with that in current state, but there needs to be a ton more. Um, I, I think I want to also just add in my mind, how much of a slap in the face I feel it is to our most vulnerable patients right now, that we know COVID affects them more. Um, and yet, and we know they're probably most in need of getting the vaccine, but we have not done a great job of, of bringing their voice to the table, of really making sure their questions are heard and answered so that they could get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a travesty. We had what? six to eight months to think about what that messaging should look like while vaccines were being developed. Now, granted, I guess you can't answer a question very well without the results of the trials. (laughs) So, you know, I can't say that all of that could have been solved, but I I 
think we still, knowing what we know, have not done a good job of letting our patients' voices be heard and bringing them to the table as we move along with our planning and, and just learning about COVID. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the distress? Because I think a lot of people think it's, they go like maybe the first step of understanding like the history of the distrust, but it's not like medical racism is a thing of the past and no longer happening. So can you talk a little bit about maybe the historical perspective and then how you see racism playing out in healthcare now? Yeah, um, I mean, I do think a ton of it is this kind of implicit bias that exists, which as we know is, is not intentional, right? It's been so ingrained in us from years, decades, centuries of structural racism that you don't even know it's playing out in your own mind. And, and, and let me be clear, because I think my opinion, and I'm very much a person who's like, can we just, I really want everyone to get along. We got to get past this tension. So, so you have to recognize I'm coming at it from, from that angle. But I want to be clear that implicit bias lives in all of us, whether you are a person of color, whether you are a white man from Europe or a white man in America, mm -hmm. we all have it to a degree. And, and you know, the listeners on this uh, podcast can't see me, but I, I will let you know, I self-identify as Black. I'm a woman of color. And I think if you were to see me on the street, you would certainly wonder what my ethnicity was. And you probably wouldn't think that it was just Caucasian, but I don't know that you would immediately be able to, to pick out that I'm black. Um, and I have a lot of European features and um, I'm fairer skinned. I have some curl to my hair, but on any given day, I might be able to straighten that out and you'd, you'd wonder in that regard. Um, but I want to acknowledge that I have my own implicit biases, and I think for the Black community, there is bias towards white folks, you know? I just, it goes in so many different directions, and I don't think anyone is to blame for that in current state. Well, maybe I take that back. <laughs> There's probably <laughs> some blame that could be placed, but... I think that a lot of it is super ingrained and beyond what you may cognitively even realize for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so my own example of that is I remember my, my son um, and my son is, is a little darker skin than me. He's, he's probably a caramel complexion. Um, he fell and needed uh, stitches. And so I picked him up from daycare at the time and uh, brought him to the hospital. And when I walked into the waiting room, everybody was a person of color. And I immediately, like my thought before I could even think about it was like, wait a minute, I, is this like a hospital that takes care of patients with insurance? Or are we in like a county hot? Like I, my thought just went to it based on the color of everyone's skin. And I recognized it all, but the thought came before I recognized it. But I at least, I'm happy I was even able to acknowledge like, wait a minute, that is a racist thought right there. Why did I just jump to, skin color insured versus uninsured um, and had to even check myself as a person of color, which is strange, right? So it, is, it lives in all of us and, and it brings us, I think, to where we are today. And the key in my mind is gotta recognize that. And, and where I place blame or where I kind of get rubbed the wrong way is when people refuse to believe that truth. Right. I think here we are in the midst of COVID where we know the, the science is giving us 
the truth and the data that we need. And there are some who simply don't want to accept that truth. And, and it's been interesting for me. I, have, I'm, I almost am like, I don't know that I want to even waste my energy with that group of people. Are you talking about people who doubt that COVID is even a thing? Thank you. Yeah. People who I have, are dying and refuse to accept that COVID is playing any role in that yeah. um, are refusing to wear masks when the Capitol is being <laughs> invaded um, and, and now multiple congressmen, you know, are infected with it. It's just the refusal to believe a truth. And, and that's where I don't know if, if energy should even be invested in that crew. I, I'm very interested in talking to people who simply have questions and need to understand the science and the data. And I'm, I'm very interested in talking to a group who's like, hey, I, I do think implicit bias exists. I do think that historical policies and things have brought us to where we are now. I can't fully see it in, in my skin color or in who I am, but I bet it exists. And I just need to have some conversations around that um, to understand it more. Um, but I think there are some who, who, who don't want to accept it at all. Yeah, yeah. So. Are you, are you seeing more resistance? Are you able to make this distinction with your patient population and where you work, it's predominantly black and, and minority patients from, from my personal experiences being there earlier in my career. Um, but do you feel like you're getting resistance from black, like in terms of the vaccine, are you getting resistance from white folks and black folks? And, and Latinx folks, or what, where are you seeing like more resistance and, and what do you think the cause of that is? Well, I think it is it's hard to say. I mean, my patient population is, is definitely majority minority. Um, and so it's really hard to even know where that stands with other patients of different demographics because yeah, that, is, yeah. that is my population. What I can say is that, so, so I think of it in two groups, the healthcare group, that is getting vaccinated and then our patients. Okay. In terms of our health care group, right, which consists of nurses and CMAs and physicians and pharmacists, et cetera, it seems to me that the closer the healthcare personnel is to the science, um, the more likely they are to get the vaccine. And what I mean by that is for myself, our physicians are running. <laughs> We're running <laughs> to get it yeah. because we are caring for the patients day to day who have it and are seeing how sick they are. We also, quite frankly, took biochemistry and biology, and we understand what mRNA is and that it can't give you COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can, we can understand that in the, the medical terms that it is, has been delivered to us. Our nurses, I, I, my, what I have seen, and again, this is just my own anecdotal, um, what I see, um, my nurses seem to be a little bit more inclined to get it. Um, as opposed to our CMAs, or as opposed to some of our um, environmental health services, et cetera. So I just think the farther you are away from, from that biology and biochemistry education, the less likely you are to get it in the healthcare system. And then let's bring it to our patients. So I will say right now we are, um, so we live in Georgia. Every, and this makes it challenging, every state has their own guidance from their own governor on how the vaccine should be distributed. And this is very hard for hospitals, yet the hospitals are the ones who have to figure out the plan for distribution. This is very hard for our hospital to figure out, particularly hospitals that actually are located in multiple states. So, so there are some hospitals in the Northeast region that actually service a few different states. 
and they have to have a different plan for distribution um, across all of them. Um, so I think that makes it challenging. So right now in Georgia, we are only able, uh, per the governor's guidelines, to give our vaccines to those who are 65 and older. In my small cohort of patients, our, our clinic serves a good 17 to 20,000 plus patients, right? So I can only speak to my own patients, but those who are 65 and older in my cohort, they're like, sign me up. <laughs> so again, I think our patients are very fearful of COVID and are considering doing this. Um, but our healthcare worker, at least for my 65 and older, now, once we roll out to those younger, maybe that interest will change, right? But it does seem that the highest targeted group, at least for the patients I'm serving, and, and perhaps it's the trust that we have together. I mean, these are the patients that I have worked with for over 10 years. Yeah. I, I think they, I hope that they know that I would not tell them anything different from what I would tell my mom or my you know, yeah. close aunt. And so perhaps that bit of trust, which I think speaks to the beauty of primary care, um, that when you have known your doctor for years and, and you know that the advice they're giving you is no different from what they would be given to their own family member, that makes a difference as opposed to just a, um, a person you're seeing one time only and are just, hey, come over here, we've got some vaccines. That might feel very different um, in terms of that patient feeling comfortable going um, to get it. Do you think that it's so interesting that the patients are more willing to, I, I'm just thinking about the healthcare staff. Do you feel like the, the people who have potentially less access to the, the like hardcore science education may have also been exposed to a lot more of the systemic racism, like generally, and the mis um, and the mis like because they are not as educated because I know obviously like education doesn't stop systemic racism against black people um, or, or any minorities but I'm just I'm wondering like if perhaps that they've maybe there's a deeper level of distrust because of their lived experience of of what they've I don't you know I can't really say that I'd be able to give that provide a justifiable answer to sure. it. Sure. Here's what I can say. Structural racism plays itself out even in higher levels of education. Yeah. For sure. And I know more than enough colleagues who have talked about the microaggressions and the comments that they yeah. have received um, as a PhD, MD, people who've talked about being at the table with colleagues for years, and then when their name comes up or their face comes up outside of that setting, their colleague doesn't even recognize who they are. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't think that was, is intentional. I think some of that is implicit. You're just not even paying attention to this brown skin person right over here <laughs> to even recognize when you see them in the yeah. grocery store, you know? So it plays itself out no matter what level of education you are. That said, I do think that the less money you make or the more impoverished or under-resourced your neighborhood is, the more you feel that on any given day. I mean, you don't, not only are you feeling it in your workplace, not only are you feeling it, you know, um, when you have to interface with people, but you feel it when you go home. And, and so it, 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 you can't escape it. At least for me, you know, as a physician, I can come home to my neighborhood. I'm not, you know, worried too much about the crime there. I know that there's a grocery store and access to healthy food just down the street for me. 
There's a nearby doctor if I need it. I have a place to come home and feel safe and comfortable. What if you don't have that, right? Yeah. It is very hard to wrap your head around, in my opinion, let me learn a little bit about this vaccine or what you know I need to do when you come in home and just trying to figure out how to have food on the table and pay your your gas bill you don't you don't have time to invest in all of that and ask those questions you may not know who to reach out to to get those answers those uh questions answered yeah. and then you have all of the misinformation coming at you i i have heard stories and rumblings of people saying that um Oh, we, we were told that the vaccine that the black folks are getting is not going to be the same one that the white folks are getting. Like these little, you know, and it's, there's so much misinformation out there. It's unfortunate. Um, and it's hard to keep up with. And it's, but again, that's why I think bringing your patient and asking them, what are you hearing? What are you yeah. worried about is so key. So I guess, and it's so interesting because that depends on the patients having access to a doctor that they see regularly having the, you know, the, 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 the freedom of movement, for lack of a better term, to, to come to see a doctor regularly. There's so much systemically embedded in there. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, and, and any of that, just yes, the misinformation, of course, but like any of that distrust is very well earned <laughs> because of atrocities like Tuskegee and, and, and Henrietta Lacks, which are, you know, ex patients being experimented on or, and, and purposely harmed without their permission. But it continues to this day. We were talking about Dr. Susan Moore before this. And just to your point of systemic racism doesn't stop when you're well-educated. Um, for anyone listening, Dr. Susan Moore is a physician, I believe a family physician who died of COVID uh, last month sometime. I think it was in, maybe it was December, um, early January. And she was really, really poorly treated by her medical team and videoing it and, and posting on social media. And because of COVID didn't have people to come in and advocate for her other than herself. Um, any thoughts about that? Because there's, you and I were talking about this. If people are, if, if people are like, and I, when I say people, I mean white people. <laughs> I should be very clear there. If white people care enough to understand why there might be mistrust and they hear about Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks where her cervical cancer cells have been used for like countless experiments without the family's permission, they might still, if they don't keep looking, they may tend to think that stuff was in the past and that's not still happening. And it's obviously still happening. So maybe could you comment a little bit on how that systemic racism might be experienced in the healthcare system still today? Yeah, I mean, so not speaking directly to, to Dr. Moore's case, because I don't know all the details of that and all of her video postings, you know, and I try to, to investigate and know things well to be able to speak on them, right? Sure. But there are so many health inequities currently um, in, in diseases that we treat. So, so sickle cell disease, as an example, uh, my sister-in-law deals with this and, and she constantly feels stigmatized in terms of, you know, when she is in a crisis and in need of pain medications, um, feeling like she's being looked at a certain way and, and, and she's, she's always, 
talking about, listen, I hate going to the hospital. I don't want to be there. I'm ready to be home with my husband and my daughter. And, you know, I know that at a very personal level, right, that that a physician is not going to necessarily be able to see or know intimately because they're not in her day-to-day life. And so from the outside looking in, and I can think about this in my own training, all of my experience with patients with sickle cell disease had to relate related to a crisis. It related to them needing to be admitted for a pain management due to their sickle cell crisis. We, and, and this is fortunate and unfortunate, we actually have a, an outpatient sickle cell clinic at our um, health system with people who know the disease very well and, and how to manage it in the outpatient setting. And, and I think that was done with good intention. The, the downstream effect of that is that as a, a general internist, I don't get to see the outpatient management of sickle cell or what my patients look like when they aren't in crisis, right? And so, you know, the downstream effect of that is that you get this biased look where, oh man, every patient with sickle cell disease is always in pain and in need of pain medicine. And and that just creates a certain stigma. And you don't even realize that, that it's been since I finished my training that I think back on it and I'm like, oh man, that was really just one side of sickle cell disease management. I wish we could have seen the whole picture um, of it and and done more rotations through the sickle cell outpatient center, um, et cetera. But knowing that information, right? So so let's just contrast that with sickle cell is you're born with it. You're born with sickle cell disease and you deal with it your entire life. Cystic fibrosis people are born with. How many cystic fibrosis centers are there that are super well-funded? We've got all these drugs. We've got transplant centers, et cetera. Do you know that until 2014, there was only one drug to help with sickle cell disease? Um, that in and of itself is unfortunate. Um, there are, have been studies looking at healthcare worker attitudes towards patients. There's a 2016 study showing that 60, 63% of nurses thought that sickle cell disease led to drug addiction, Um, that uh, patients with sickle cell disease who are in the ED wait 60% longer for pain medications than other patients, despite having higher pain scores. Um, There seems to be sometimes use of stigmatizing language in the the electronic records um, for patients with sickle cell disease. And of course, there is mistrust by patients with sickle cell disease in the medical system. And so perhaps, you know, they avoid care unless they're in dire straits and and can no longer deal with it. Um, So there's challenges even within this disease and it it spans chronic diseases, quite frankly. Um, There's data in many other areas. That's just one very tangible example. And for anyone listening who isn't aware of this sickle cell disease is what, like 99% in the U.S. black patients? Like you, it, there are, it, it can happen in Mediterranean patients, but for the most part in the U.S., it's, it's, I don't think I've ever seen a sickle cell patient who was not black. So it is very, very, very prone to all the biases, all the bad things about systemic racism in healthcare. You're going to see that show up even more so in sickle cell because of that. The trait originated in Africa is actually helpful for uh, preventing malaria. Mm. So, you know, black and white is, is not a, it's, this is all a social construct, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not every black person. It, it comes from 
that origination. And so it's actually certain uh, um, ethnicities and, and, and whatnot, but it is not purely a black disease um, or a non-white disease. I mean, it, it, it originates there. And so the genetic makeup when you, and I hate to even use, because again, 99.9% .9 of our genes are completely the same, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's something that developed actually to help with malaria. Um, and unfortunately has other consequences as yeah. well. Yeah. So, so yeah. And these are all such great points too. And, and, and nuances that like even I, as a physician don't know all the details of. So it's very, you can see it's very easy to make these generalizations. Well, um, there's a, there's a good historical story to that. Actually. I'm, I'm actually reading a book right now called my grandmother's hands. Oh, it's um, so good. Oh, have you? Yeah. That's so I'm about halfway through that, right? And it talks about this concept of black and white was a very American thing that came about in the 1700s. Then prior to that, everybody identified by their country of origin. So you were French or you were Spanish um, and yeah, um, Native American maybe even, but, but black and white was not a thing. It was what country were you from? Um, and what happened was, you know, originally uh, white folks and black folks were enslaved and white folks and black folks um, would, would rise up against their plantation owners and, and try to fight it. And in the, I think it was either the late 1700s or early 1800s, um, plantation owners became savvy to this and said, hey, let's use a divide and conquer approach. And basically, if you are a white slave, we're going to now actually, you know, uh, you'll have a bit more privilege than, than the black slaves. And, and we're going to make this easy to distinguish. So if you've got white skin, you know you're going to have a little bit more privilege than those with, the, with black skin or darker skins. Um, and so they basically created this to, to basically divide and conquer. And, and now those who were enslaved but white felt a little bit more power and privilege and, and therefore went against black folks and here we are. Yeah, it's it, the proximity to whiteness and what people will, like, if, if I have a, um, one of my podcast guests, uh, Ruby Sales, um, who's a civil rights legend, she talked about a soul death and how you, how people trade these other cultural identities of themselves to get closer to whiteness. And in doing so, everything depends on their whiteness. And, and so anything perceived as a threat to that is like not just it's like their whole identity and their whole soul which is so fascinating and it takes us away from our cultural you know connections and, and healing uh traditions and 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 so much more so yeah exactly what you're saying is is so incredible that race isn't it's not fluid and and there's people who like you may be considered if you went to like Brazil or something, you might be considered a totally different race or South Africa or something, um, just literally based on the way your skin looks, um, which is such a social construct. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You identify in various different ways from what someone on the outside looking at you might identify you. Can you talk a little bit about colorism? Because we, we, I know that's something we talked about before. Um, your, what, how that's affected your experience as a, as a lighter skinned person and like any, um, like the tendency of 
society to treat people with lighter skin better, but then also within, you know, white people, lighter skinned black people and darker skinned black people having some tension as well because of that. Well, yeah, so I, I grew up in New Orleans and my, my dad used to always tell me these stories about like um, the brown paper bag test that if your skin was darker than a brown paper bag, you couldn't get into certain societies and clubs and um, couldn't do certain things um, in society. Um, and then there was also the, the pencil test, which if, if someone could put a pencil in your hair and it, it would easily glide through and fall to the ground, you would, uh, <laughs> you would quote, pass, or you'd at least be accepted in these, um, these institutions and, and fun clubs, et cetera, because, you know, we did Mardi Gras and all these things. Mm -hmm. So um, that stuck with me. And then uh, my mom could pass for white. I mean, she definitely could, the pencil test would have worked for her. It wouldn't have worked so much for me, but <laughs> it would have worked for her. And so um, if, if you didn't know how she self-identified or, or had a conversation with her, you just walking down the street, you would easily think she was white. And I think for my mom, she, she's mentioned to me that she felt like she didn't quite have her place in the world growing up, that it was hard because she identified as black but um, certain people in the Black community felt that she always was able, or I don't know, her herself, you know, but the, the look of her, she could easily pass for white, and she just got granted certain privileges that other folks weren't granted, and, and that, you know, didn't sit well with folks. And so she um, struggled, I think, to find her own place and, and friends, and wound up that she has a cohort of friends who are, are uh lighter skinned women of color who identify as black but could easily pass as white. And I don't know that they chose to pass, but again, I don't think you always have to choose. Do you, does that make sense? Like yeah. if someone just looking at you assumes you're a white, you are just gonna have a different experience from if they look at you and assume you are black, whether you want it to be that way or not. And I think that was the point of others looking at mom, right? They were like, your experience is just different from mine. You may not even realize it. You may not even want it to be that way, but it just is. Um, and that certainly played into to her um, childhood and young adulthood, I'd say. Yeah. Is that something you've experienced as well? I think so. I, I think so. I, I distinctly remember caring for a patient once who, who was having his own chronic pain issues. And uh, we were worried that it, more medicines were gonna be more unsafe for him than they were helpful. That even the, the regimen he was on didn't seem to be helping much. And <laughs> quite frankly, afraid that we were gonna suppress his respiratory rate or, or have some real bad outcomes if we went any higher on it. And, and I distinctly remember him calling me a, a white bitch. And, mm. and I remember my immediate thought was, I just wanted to defend my blackness quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> But I decided like that was not, you know, don't get pulled into, into that conversation. But I also remember distinctly understanding why with everything that has happened in with structural racism over decades, over centuries, with things that even persist now, again, some completely unintentional. I, I talked about my own experience caring for sickle cell patients. I mean, I don't, I, we created a center to manage our patients in the outpatient setting to support and help our sickle cell patients. It was just an unintended consequence that as a result of that, my experience as a learner would be to only care for them 
on the inpatient side, right? But it came out of really good intent. So I think sometimes there's a very like unintentional consequences, but sometimes it is incredibly intentional. But anyway, my point being that I could see how as a patient, if you are coming with all these experiences, that if some if, if something doesn't go your way or if a physician is making a, a management decision, I can understand why your first thought might be like, are they managing or treating me this way because of the color of my skin? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't fault, I'm not angry at the fact that that is what my patient immediately thought or said to me um, because I get it. But certainly it hits me, especially because I think sometimes I forget how I'm seen by others because I so myself identify a certain way. That it's kind of like a joke when someone, I realize that again, this is all a social construct, right? And the way people see me may be very different from how I uh, self-identify. And it's just a really interesting um, thing. <laughs> and our, yeah, and it's so messed up that that's even a thing. But I mean, light skin, there's so many, like in India, I know, and in China, these are places where I've been and, and, and spoken to a lot of people who are from there, from that culture, like light skin is this like, um, like, like trait to be sought after, you know, like there's skin bleaching creams and, and all sorts of stuff. So it goes, it goes outside of black and white, but it's all part of white supremacy culture. This, this like trying to get to some ideal of what the standard should be or is, which is completely arbitrary and not. Well, it's really, it, it, it's all messed up. And, but I'll say this and I'm very much a glass half full. I, my situation is like so much, I can't even complain because you think about people who are losing their lives, you know, to officers and others for the color of their skin. I can't come up with any other reason. <laughs> why some of these things, and, and let me just, listen, this is a reflex, right? When, when you are an officer in a life, oh, so I'm reading my grandmother's hands again, right? Mm-hmm. And he actually talks about um, the author, the author is black. And he talks about his white friend who's in the, the VA and, you know, carries his own <laughs> gun wherever he goes, which is licensed. And he, he talks about this experience that um, his white friend had with a cop who once the cop pulled him over for a taillight being out and saw that he had a gun, in, which was registered and out in the open, which is what he's supposed to do, um, immediately like threw this guy up against the car. This is a white dude. And the guy was like, oh, now I'm starting to understand this whole driving while black. Like if that's how I got treated, goodness. If it, yeah. and, but then he also talks about a case where um, a white guy was speeding on a motorcycle. This is a real story. The, the police officer pulled him over, um, you know, and said, put, he, the police officer had to chase him for quite a while. So you can imagine by the time the police officer gets this guy to pull over, he is like, this guy could be armed and dangerous, right? Yeah. He I totally had to do a high speed chase after this man. So the police officer says, put your arms up. And he starts to read, or not read, but say the rights. And then the gun fires. This is all recorded. The gun fires. And then the officer runs up to the guy. The guy's like, why'd you shoot me? And the officer's like, dude, it was unintentional. And he tries to help the guy. The guy got shot in the leg. And, you know, anyway. So that's the story. The the point being, this was a white person 
and a white police officer. And the police officer actually wasn't trying to shoot the guy. It was the adrenaline rush. Mm. And, and in the accounts of this after the, the case, the police officer's like, man, I, thinking back on it, it was such reflex. Like I was already heightened. My adrenaline was rushing. So the point being that that could happen to a white guy on his motorcycle. <laughs> And then you think about these years, decades, and centuries of implicit bias and structural racism that how much more heightened could that unintentional reflex of pulling the trigger be um, for a patient with or a person with dark skin, right? And so um, it's, it's just so in the heat of a moment when adrenaline is rushing, I... I I do not envy our police officers. I don't want to <laughs> even have to be in that situation where implicit bias or that gut, you know, decision when you compound racism into it that that plays in. So um, I, I say all of that to say that while my experience as a woman of color being in this kind of awkward situation brings its own challenges, and certainly for my mom brought its own how much more so for just our entire black community as a whole, you know? And, and so I am, I'm grateful every day for where I'm at, for what I'm learning, for how I might be able to advocate around this. And I just want to get us to a point where we are beyond what structural racism has done to us. We, we got to figure out how to move forward um, for our entire uh, black and brown community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for all the work that you do, um, taking the time with your patients and being such an advocate. And we didn't really have a chance to get into social determinants of health. Uh, for anyone listening, if you want to learn more, um, I have a great podcast episode with Dr. Stan Sonu, who works with uh, Dr. Schmidt, and, and we talked a lot about that. Um, but, you know, there are reasons <laughs> for all of these, you know, the, the increased poverty and the, you know, increase in chronic disease amongst black and brown populations. The reasons are systemic racism. The reasons are not anything inherent in those, in those people. Um, and social determinants of health really do a great job helping, helping doctors and, and everyone to understand that. So certainly something to, to learn more about. Maybe we'll have you on for part two to talk about that some more. Um, but thank you for everything you do and for being vulnerable about your own uh, experience with, you know, realizing your bias when you went into that waiting room and, and sharing that. I think the more we can do to destigmatize bias and just understand that it's an ugly thing that lies in all of us and that we don't have to pretend that it's not there and that pretending doesn't help. Um, I think we can, that can do a lot to help move us forward. Um, any last thoughts or, um, Anything else you'd like to share? Um, I would end with saying, you know, we as a society created this problem. Um, again, there's there's so much policy and things we could talk about with segregation of communities and building interstates and systems strategically to segregate and um, and create poverty in certain neighborhoods, which then creates the social determinants yeah. of health, right? But we as a society over years and centuries created this problem it ain't gonna be easy or quick to fix it. It's probably gonna take years and decades and centuries. But we've got to start, and I think we start by acknowledging the truth um, that exists and slowly but surely work towards a better, a better society. 
Uh, I love that. I'm writing it down. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Dr. Stacey Schmidt. I know you're not really like a big social media person and you're not like a person who's, you're professionally dealing with it in your role as a doctor, but you're not like a, do you have like platforms or, or anything where people can find you or follow you or? I mean, I have them. I can't even remember my handles. <laughs> you can email me. Um, but yeah, no, I don't really have any platforms. I, I should get better with that. I think as, as we continue to talk and, and have these conversations, social media is just part of what that looks like. And it, it's got to be good social media, right? Working against misinformation and really talking about um, truthful things and backing that up is where we need to get. So I'll get better. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for everything that you do and for sharing uh, your perspective here with me today. Have a good one. It was really great to be on. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.